This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, A Cassus Belly Project. So in this installment, we're going to discuss the Aleutian Islands campaign. If I were writing a book, as opposed to a serialized podcast, this is a point where I would make an editorial judgment and move this chapter earlier in the narrative. Instead of chapter 45, I would move this up to chapter 42, maybe. Due to the broad, chronological scope of the Aleutian Islands campaign, I think it would have fit better there. We just talked about events of late November 1943, but I'm about to set the clock back to mid-1942 to set the scene, then spend most of the episode in mid-1943. So it's not terribly out of place, but I do feel the pacing is a little off. But alas, these are the shortcomings of podcasting, so we just have to drive on. I also want to mention the sources I used for this episode, because for once, I feel like I had a canned episode or I could have just taken an existing document, read from it, and essentially had my episode. Now obviously I didn't do that and used multiple sources to write this, but it's certainly easier when I have something with the appropriate level of scope and depth to draw upon. I found my two main source documents for this episode in the Ike Skelton Combined Arms Research Library of the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College, which I've been using for some time now. They were primarily Aleutian Islands, published by the U.S. Army Center for Military History in the mid-1990s, and a U.S. Navy combat narrative titled The Aleutians Campaign, June 1942 through August 1943, first published by the Office of Naval Intelligence in June 1945 and subsequently declassified. Combat narratives were confidential documents produced by ONI at the behest of the Chief of Naval Operations in order to spread lessons learned from various engagements and campaigns that may not be public information. This particular combat narrative is 143 pages long and provides, in some places, excruciating detail. The Ike Skelton Library has a vast array of historical documents like these available online. I've taken to scouring it for relevant documents. Except for interviews with enemy combatants after the war, these are almost entirely American documents, so don't include outside perspectives, but I still find them extremely useful. I'll include links to the documents in the blog post for this episode, in case anyone is interested. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or corrections, you can contact me at cassisbellyguy at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback from listeners. You can also visit the website at cassisbellypodcast.com slash worldwar2 with a number 2. Lately, I've been trying to add more to the blog posts, like full transcripts and adding bibliographical details. Anyway, enough of that. Let's get to the show and begin episode 45, War on the Cold Periphery. I have been astonished 
that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? strategic situation that resulted in the Aleutian Islands campaign is rooted in the same events that shaped the Southwest Pacific and the Central Pacific, which we have discussed at length beginning way back in episode 18. But to recap, in the wake of Pearl Harbor, the Japanese exploded across the Pacific, seizing land in Southeast Asia, Indonesia, New Guinea, the Solomons, and the Central Pacific in order to forge a massive island perimeter around the Eastern Pacific. The Aleutian Islands stretching from the tip of Alaska more than a thousand miles westward towards Asia, represented what the Japanese saw as the key to defending their eastern north flank. At their closest, the Aleutians come within only 650 miles of the Kuril Islands. In fact, Atu Island, the westernmost American island in the chain, is closer to the Japanese Kurils than it is to mainland Alaska. A bit surprising, considering that we usually imagine the United States and Japan as being separated by several thousand miles of open ocean across the breadth of the Pacific. Not that either of these island chains are particularly developed or well defended, but they posed a threat nonetheless. The islands themselves constitute yet another form of absolute misery, and maybe the most miserable fighting conditions we have yet discussed. Geographically, the islands are the result of volcanism, with jagged shorelines and rapidly rising elevation consisting of volcanic cinder cones. Climatologically, they're characterized by frequent cold rains, up to 50 inches a year, driven by warm water currents rising up from the equator along the eastern seaboard of Asia. Much like the northern British Isles or Scandinavia warmed by the Gulf Stream. This warm water makes the islands particularly foggy and brings frequent storms at sea. On land, the climate is too cold for any real vegetation. They're generally at the same latitude as London or Vancouver, so instead the islands are covered in a dense mass of muskeg, the regional name for peat moss, which forms a deep, sopping material. This, combined with the uneven terrain, could form invisible pits that men could disappear into. Though the weather was a constant headache for military planners, the Japanese held one advantage. Given that the prevailing winds are from west to east, they had a better idea of what weather systems were bound for the islands and could better prepare. The North Pacific area of the Pacific Theater came into play almost immediately. The invasion and occupation of the Aleutians was to take place alongside the Japanese invasions of Midway, the Gilberts, and the Solomon Islands, and their effort to create an outer perimeter. The specific time for the occupation of the Aleutians was uncertain at first, but the Doolittle Raid on Tokyo increased the Japanese awareness of their northern flank, and thus made to coincide with the Battle of Midway. Yamamoto believed that he could draw the U.S. Pacific Fleet away from Pearl Harbor by demonstrating toward the North Pacific, and using that as a distraction from his main thrust at Midway. The plan was for Nimitz to then redirect his fleet south to prevent the capture of Midway and catch him in a trap. Yamamoto provided Vice Admiral 
Boshiro Hosogaya's northern area fleet with two small aircraft carriers, five cruisers, 12 destroyers, six submarines, four troop transports, and various other support ships to achieve this goal. Having cracked the Japanese naval code, Nimitz was aware of Yamamoto's plan, however, and acted to thwart it. The resulting Battle of Midway we already discussed in episode 25, but we did not discuss the force sent to deal with the Japanese diversion in the North Pacific. To deal with the Japanese threat to Alaska, Nimitz dispatched Rear Admiral Robert Theobald in command of Task Force 8. Task Force 8 had no carriers because Nimitz wanted those committed to the defense of Midway, but it did consist of five cruisers, 14 destroyers, and six submarines. Theobald departed Hawaii on May 25, 1942, with orders to defend Dutch Harbor, the largest, yet still small, naval facility in the island chain. In early 1942, the Alaska Department had 45,000 men assigned to it, with about 13,000 at Fort Randall, at the tip of the Alaskan Peninsula, all under the command of Major General Simon Bolivar Buckner, of later fame at Okinawa. Only 2,300 men, not counting Army Air Force personnel, were stationed in the Aleutian Islands themselves, at Dutch Harbor and Fort Glenn, about 70 miles further west. Total air forces in the region consisted of 44 bombers, both light and heavy, and 95 fighters, under Brigadier General William Butler of the 11th Air Force. When Admiral Theobald arrived, he met with General Buckner at Kodiak Island and combined his forces with those of the Alaska Defense Command. The first objective was to locate the enemy fleet. This task was handed to the 11th Air Force, who were to patrol the waters surrounding the Aleutians in order to locate and then attack the enemy surface vessels, beginning with its carriers. Their 23 PBYs were ideal for this task, with their 400-mile range, but would be stretched to their limit to cover the search area effectively. They would be substantially aided by the installation of radar on the aircraft, which allowed them to detect not only enemy ships in the dense clouds, fog, and rain of the North Pacific, but also mountains and other landforms that could create navigational hazards. On June 2nd, they briefly detected the enemy fleet roughly 400 miles southwest of Dutch Harbor, but poor weather and low cloud allowed Hosogaya to quickly disappear. The next morning, in conjunction with the Midway operation, the Japanese launched an aerial attack on Dutch Harbor. At 0545, anti-aircraft gunners spotted 15 Japanese aircraft, which proceeded to strafe the shore facilities. They did little damage and departed to the north, but were followed five minutes later by four bombers, which dropped a total of 16 bombs. This run did more significant damage, destroying two barracks, four Quonset huts, and killing 25 men. A third wave appeared shortly thereafter, but missed its target. In total, 15 fighters and 13 bombers participated in the raid, but none were shot down. Intense anti-aircraft fire likely disrupted the Japanese attack, however, resulting in reduced loss of life. On June 4th, the Japanese launched another raid, this time with greater success. At Dutch Harbor, a combination of dive bombers and horizontal bombers managed to destroy four 6,600-barrel fuel tanks for a total loss of over 20,000 barrels. They also destroyed part of the hospital, a barrack ship, as well as partial damage to a warehouse and an empty hangar. 43 men were killed and a further 50 wounded. Simultaneously, Hosogaya launched a raid on Fort Glenn on Umnak Island. Here, at least, Army Air Force aircraft were able to scramble and intercept the Japanese raiders. Two Japanese aircraft were downed, and the rest withdrew without delivering their payloads. As they receded into the fog bank, American radio men tracked their transmissions and listened to the panicked voices desperately searching for their carriers. Those flyers never returned home, and were forced to put down in the frigid ocean, where they likely froze to death or drowned. 
The attacks of 3 and 4 June represented the only offensive action by the Japanese in the central or eastern illusions. From then on, all of their efforts would be concentrated on the far western end of the island chain. As Admiral Hosogaya roamed the North Pacific launching raids, American patrol craft continued to hunt and track him. The strain this put on the air crews was immense. As weather and enemy action attrited the force, the remaining airmen were forced to adopt ever more grueling schedules, sometimes as long as 48 hours of continuous operations, in absolutely dreadful weather. By June 4th, only 14 PVYs remained operational. On June 7th, the situation was dire enough that the Army Air Force agreed to essentially pilfer all of its West Coast patrol squadrons, sending four A-29s, four B-17s, and six B-24s up to Alaska to augment the Air Force's already present. Meanwhile, Admiral Theobald's task force remained on station in the Gulf of Alaska in order to be in position to interdict any attempted landings on the mainland or any major island installations. On June 5th, he acted on reports of enemy activity in the vicinity of Dutch Harbor, which he believed could be a landing force. In conjunction with this movement, he instructed General Butler to attack the enemy vessels with all available aircraft. A flight of radar-equipped B-17s reported landing hits on Japanese vessels, but it was later determined that they had most likely bombed a scattering of uninhabited islands. While patrolling in the vicinity of Dutch Harbor, Theobald missed the actual landings taking place at Atu and Kiska, 600 miles further west. In the wake of the failure to seize Midway Island and the loss of four aircraft carriers, the Japanese fleet withdrew from the Central Pacific. Rather than withdraw the North Pacific fleet as well, Yamamoto instructed Hosogaya to attack the Western Aleutians to at least somewhat compensate for the loss of initiative in the Central Pacific, and even dispatched two carriers to bolster Hosogaya's forces. On June 6th, 500 Marines of the Japanese No. 3 Special Landing Party landed at Kiska, and the 301st Independent Infantry Battalion occupied Atu. In fact, it wasn't even clear to the Americans that anything had happened until June 11th, when patrol craft spotted unknown vessels in Kiska Harbor. In response, a continuous bombing operation was ordered. This proved minimally effective, however, as the PBYs were not well suited to bombing missions. The only American presence on either island was a 10-man naval weather station on Kiska, one of whom escaped Japanese capture in the initial occupation. The single sailor wandered the island for 50 days avoiding capture, eating grass and nearly freezing to death. After nearly two months of this hellish existence, the man surrendered to the Japanese. On June 12th, the 11th Air Force launched a flight of Liberators to bomb Kiska, but due to the distance and the pilots' unfamiliarity with the area, it proved futile. Only three bombs found their targets, but only incurred superficial damage. In return, the Japanese managed to shoot down one of the American aircraft with heavy anti-aircraft fire. More bombing runs would follow, but for the most part they proved ineffective and likely served as little more than a nuisance for the occupiers a more determined effort would be needed to dislodge the Japanese. In mid-June, the Joint Chiefs of Staff agreed that a concerted effort must be made to expel the Japanese from the Aleutians. Not so much because they posed a threat to American operations. An invasion of Japan via the northern route was never seriously considered, and without Midway, the outpost served little use for the Japanese. There remained some lingering concern for a Japanese invasion of the Alaskan mainland, however. Three different sightings of Japanese forces in Alaskan waters triggered a massive reaction from the United States to reinforce the Alaska Department. In 36 hours, 2,300 troops were airlifted to Nome, the assumed objective of the suspected invasion. By mid-July, after observing Hosegai's fleet leaving the North Pacific, 
military leadership felt comfortable that the threat of invasion had subsided and the additional troops were redeployed elsewhere. Despite these concerns, the primary reason for expelling the Japanese was pride. They were on American soil. The Joint Chiefs simply could not tolerate any occupation of America anywhere, no matter how distant or uninhabited. Atu and Kiska could well have been left to wither on the vine, much as many other Japanese Pacific garrisons, with little effect on broader operations. But in the early war, these morale victories were just as important as tactical ones. To set the conditions for the recapture of Atu and Kiska, Admiral Theobald and General Buckner set out to establish a network of air bases in the essential Aleutians from which to launch bombing raids on the occupied islands and execute a strong attrition policy aimed at wearing down the Japanese garrisons. They needed to get air bases within 250 miles of the enemy and began reconnaissance missions to identify suitable locations. In the meantime, a submarine screen was established and proved effective, sinking one transport ship and one light ship during its first month. Several islands were identified that would serve as good air bases, but ADAC was determined to be the best for their purposes. The first of these island air bases was occupied on August 30th, when 4,500 soldiers seized ADAC, 400 miles west of Umnak. Within two weeks, an airfield was completed, a feat of engineering efficiency that the engineers would repeat again and again throughout the theater. On September 14th, the first bombing run of B-24s took off from ADAC to raid Kiska, 200 miles to the west. The first bombing run struck three transport ships, sunk two minesweepers, and strafed three midget submarines. Not a grand haul, but a good start. For their part, the Japanese had not sat idle during the intervening period. In August, a thousand more marines arrived on Kiska, along with a 500-man labor detachment, and by November, total strength on the island was about 4,000 men. Total strength on Atu climbed to roughly a thousand. The Japanese were counting on winter months to ease the pressure from the American strikes, but the weather and relentless conditions would prove to be equally fierce opponents. American forces continued to build over the winter months as well. By January of 1943, 94,000 soldiers were assigned to the Alaska Command. Thirteen more bases had been constructed on the Aleutian chain, including Amchitka Island, occupied on January 11th, only 50 miles from Kiska. The ever-encroaching American bases combined with Admiral Kincaid's, he had replaced Admiral Theobald in January, blockade of Atu and Kiska resulted in those forces being almost completely cut off from resupply. Knowing they had to do something to support their increasingly isolated forces, Admiral Hosogaya led his task force consisting of four heavy cruisers and four destroyers to run the blockade. With him he brought three large transports laden with all manner of supplies for his beleaguered forces. Admiral Hosogaya's forces met with Admiral Kincaid's blockaders on March 26, 1943, resulting in the Battle of the Komondorsky Islands. Keep in mind, the battle actually took place west of the international date line, so technically it took place on March 27th, but by the reckoning of the American participants, who maintained Alaska time, it was the 26th. Admiral Charles McMorris formed his task force of six vessels, two cruisers and four destroyers, in a picket line about 100 miles west of Atu Island. His vessels were spaced at the customary six miles and making regular zigzags when at 0730, one hour before dawn, the lead ship, the USS Coughlin, made radar contact at 24,000 yards. With the radar bearing, the lookouts were able to identify three vessels, but due to darkness were unable to confirm type. Admiral McMorris ordered his vessels to collapse the formation and increase speed to close the distance with the unidentified vessels. At about 0750, the unidentified vessels turned left and headed north, 
almost certainly having spotted the American task force. There was little doubt left that these were Japanese ships. At 0803, Admiral McMorris radioed Admiral Kincaid to inform him that they were pursuing enemy vessels, and at 0820, at least nine vessels had been counted in the formation, including both surface combatants and auxiliary ships. Soon after, they positively identified two heavy cruisers among the Japanese fleet, upon which Admiral McMorris later remarked, quote, The situation had now clarified, but had also radically and unpleasantly changed, end quote. It was now clear that the Japanese had the advantage in position and in strength, possessing a large overmatch in firepower against McMorris' one heavy cruiser and one light cruiser. Despite the seeming disadvantage, Admiral McMorris decided to press on and target the auxiliary ships. He had hoped that by doing this, he could bring the transport ships within range before the enemy cruisers were in position to stop him. He thought he might be able to get the Japanese to split their forces if one part were to cover the retreating merchantmen, while the other screened their withdrawal. By 0840, Admiral McMorris' Task Force Mike was finally in formation and cruising north by northwest with the destroyers Bailey and Coughlin leading, followed by Richmond and Salt Lake City, recently refitted after the Battle of Cape Esperance, a thousand yards behind. To her starboard rear quarter trailed the destroyers Monaghan and Dale. Battle was about to be joined. Opposite them, the enemy vessels cruised southeastward, with two heavy cruisers in the lead, followed by two light cruisers and two destroyers. At 0840, the lead Japanese cruiser opened fire on the Richmond at 20,000 yards. The Richmond and Salt Lake City immediately opened fire in return. Japanese gunnery proved adept, and they began landing shells very close to Richmond after only one salvo, so close that her skipper believed they had been struck amidships and dispatched damage control teams. They found that only a guy wire had been cut between smokestacks. The return fire proved accurate as well. An 8-inch shell from Salt Lake City was observed impacting one of the enemy cruisers, starting a short-lived fire. Despite these early successes, McMorris felt that he was at too much of a disadvantage and ordered the task force to withdraw. The gun duels continued for about 20 minutes, with shells crashing all around his task force, oftentimes within two or 300 yards, close enough that the crews could feel the percussion blasts of the rounds impacting the water. At 0903, the Richmond left effective range and ceased fire. The Salt Lake City was still in range, however, and at 0907, one of her 8-inch shells struck home again, this time sending thick black smoke billowing out of the Japanese vessel. Unfortunately, she would herself be struck by an enemy shell three minutes later, when a Japanese round landed in her aft below the waterline. Though the damage was not critical, it had ruptured oil tanks and exploded behind the aft engine room bulkhead. The battle proceeded in much the same manner for the next three hours, after the initial gambit to catch the cargo ships unprotected failed. The American ships would attempt to keep the Japanese heavies at arm's length, as the Japanese seemed willing to partake in a long-range artillery duel, rather than close with their destroyers, as they often did in the South Pacific. This may have been because they were themselves ferrying troops and supplies, and Hosogaya did not want to expose them to undue threat. In the end, the Japanese chose to retire rather than force a decisive result, perhaps due to damage inflicted by American gunners or due to depleted ammunition stocks after several hours of constant gunfire. Either way, the engagement resulted in a tactical draw but an operational victory for the U.S. Navy. After retiring, Hosogaya was unable to relieve his forces on Atu and Kiska, so from then on could really only be resupplied by submarine. After his failure to penetrate the American blockade, Hosogaya was relieved of his command. With the islands effectively cut off from regular supply, 
the time was ripening for the recapture. Of the two, Admiral Kincaid and General Buckner determined that Kiska to be the more important because it had a better harbor and an airfield. Atu, on the other hand, was believed to have a significantly smaller garrison and lay along the sea lines of communication to Kiska, allowing them to further isolate it. By early March, Admiral Kincaid had identified that he lacked the shipping to conduct a large enough landing to take Kiska anyway. On April 1, 1943, the Joint Chiefs of Staff approved the Atu operation, codenamed Sandcrab. Though the number of Japanese defenders was originally estimated at 500 men, intelligence soon inflated that number to at least 1,300, but as many as 1,600 men, causing General Buckner to request additional forces. Initially, he had only allocated a single regiment to seize the island, but now determined that an entire division would be necessary. The Western Defense Command found the 7th Infantry Division in training near San Francisco and selected them for the Atu landings. By the end of the month, they found themselves at Fort Randall at Cold Bay, Alaska. Having been stationed in California, they were not acclimated to or prepared for the cold of Alaska and lacked proper equipment. The planners for Sand Crab were confident the battle would be over within three days, however, so the effects of lacking proper clothing would be minimal. To support the land force, Admiral Kincaid assembled his available forces, which now included three battleships, an escort carrier, three heavy cruisers, three light cruisers, 19 destroyers, as well as tenders, oilers, and transports. The 11th Air Force brought 54 bombers and 128 fighters to the operation. The invasion was initially scheduled to begin the morning of May 4th, but bad weather forced delay after delay. It was more than a week before the weather had cleared sufficiently for the landings to take place. But on the morning of May 11th, 1943, American forces were finally returning to Atu. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 